Phil for the uh, precious prayer that was offered. Um, I would ask that each one of you would uh, would pray for us this morning. Our hope is this morning that uh, would come forth from our lips would be glorifying to the uh, to the Father in heaven, uh, be edifying to you. And I would ask that uh, you would pray with me to our Father in heaven for God's mercy and guidance and help that the Holy Spirit would lead and direct our thoughts. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope that you do. The house of God is a good place to bring your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Job, the book of Job chapter 1. The book of Job chapter 1. It's going to be impossible for me with the time that we have to be exhaustive in in this book that's in God's holy word. But I'd like for us to consider this morning, this the servant, the servant Job, and uh, those things that he faced, and also let's consider the glory of the Lord and, and the things that we can, as disciples here in the year 2021, could learn and grasp and use in our in our efforts to serve God faithfully right now. The book of Job, chapter 1, and verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. I realize many efforts has has went forth in times past concerning concerning this book by men much more able than than I am. And many of those efforts, and uh, and I hope this morning in this effort we could focus just a little bit on this, have labored to uh, define what the book of Job teaches us about human life and the struggles of life, sufferings. Job is known as a man of, of suffering, and certainly he was a man that went through quite a bit in his, in his life. He was also a man that was very blessed of the Lord, and in this book we can see the sovereignty and the greatness and the blessings of the Lord that was with Job, and, and I believe is still with God's children, children today. The book of Job is, is known as one of the oldest, oldest books in the Bible. And I know many have labored in times past to try to determine who the the author of this book was. When I say author, I'm making reference to the penman of the book. We know who the real author of the book is because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And no one has ever satisfied my mind concerning who the penman is. I've, I've read people that were convinced that Moses was the penman. Some were convinced maybe Samuel, others Solomon. But to me, it, I don't have to know who the penman is to be convinced that this is part of God's holy word, that this is beneficial for us today, it's profitable for us to read and, and profitable for us to study, that we may learn more about the Lord and learn more about life, we as children of God and how we live and how we should live here in this world. The events that take place in this book, we are able to determine a general time when they took place. If you would go to Job chapter 32, you're introduced to a, to a young man named Elihu. He's one of the four that came to Job in his sufferings. 
that man, Elihu, is known as, as, as a Buzzite. If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, you'll find that one of Abraham's relatives was one of named Buzz. He was one of his brother's descendants. So the events here in the book of Job took place sometime near or maybe close to the days of, of Abraham, which that's important for us to grasp, and it being in that, in that era of time, it helped us better understand some of the conversation and some of the interaction of the individuals that, that takes place in this book. The first three chapters of the book of Job really just introduces us to Job and his, and his sufferings and the things that he would go through. And, and then you have what is like Hebrew poetry of some interactions, conversations. It goes through basically three cycles with Job's three miserable comforters, three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And their argument, they're trying to determine why, why Job is going through what he's going through, why he's suffering. Then you have the, the fourth, uh, which is Elihu, that may have been more miserable than them all in, in his efforts in talking to Job. And then the Lord comes, declares his power, his greatness and sovereignty. And then the end of Job has Job humbly submitting to the power of God, declaring his, his goodness and the Lord blessing him with more in the end than he, than he had in, in the beginning. Here in these first three verses, we're, we're introduced to this man, Job. And when we're introduced to him, we can see that he's a man of exemplary character. Would you agree? This man was a perfect man. He was upright. He's one that feared God. He was one that, that eschewed evil. And when the Bible says this man, Job, was, was a perfect man... It's not saying he's without error. It's not saying he's without flaw. It's not saying he wasn't a sinner. You know, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 teaches us that we're all sinners. And if any man says he hath not sinned, he makes God a liar. Why? Because God's word, God's word says we're all sinners. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I mean, if we understand the truth, we understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's only one that walked on this earth that never sinned, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's, he's our Savior, he's our Lord, he's God manifesting in perfect humanity. Other than that, we're all sinners. We've all come short from the first time our heart beat in our mother's womb. We were sinners by nature, and anyone that's a sinner by nature, if you give them enough time, they're going to manifest their sin and their and their practice. Um, you know, I told someone once, I said, you, know, you can go to a rattlesnake's nest, and, and the eggs be hatching out, and... And a little bitty baby rattlesnake comes out and it can look just as cute as you want it to look. And you can call it Pinkie Pie or whatever name you want to give it. But that rattlesnake one day is going to grow up and it's going to bite somebody and going to put some poison in them. It's the same way with man. You know, when we're infants, I mean, people say, that's the prettiest little baby I ever saw. But if you give the baby enough time, it will manifest its nature in, in, in sin. I had a good friend of mine that was on an airplane. He was making a long flight and he said there was a young child and in his mother's lap behind him and said the child was just, just pitching a, a fit. And so he was kicking his seat and yelling and screaming. He said he couldn't even read a magazine or anything and couldn't rest. He said he couldn't even drink water. He said every time he tried to drink water, the child would kick its, his seat and spill his water and said finally the child went to sleep and he said, and I started to get off the airplane. I looked back and mom was holding the baby and she said, isn't he the most sweetest thing? He said, sweet nothing. He said, if that baby had been 220 pounds, it would killed everybody on this airplane. <laughs> When the Bible says this man was a perfect man, it's making reference to he was a mature man. 
He was a man of mature thinking. He was a man of mature knowledge. You know, the word of God is given to us that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works. Job was a man that was mature in his knowledge and his thinking. He was a man that was upright. He was a man that, that lived right. You know, David said there in Psalms chapter 18 and verse 23, I've kept myself from my iniquity and I've been upright before the Lord. He was a man that not only was mature in his thinking, he was a man that was laboring to live right in the sight of God. He was one that feared God. That's not making reference to like a, a morbid fear where you'd hide behind chairs every time somebody would quote a verse of scripture. No, it's referring to him having respect. Having respect and a reverential fear of God. He was a man that had such a reverential and respect and fear of God He's mentioned as one of the greatest men in the Bible. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, when the children of Israel in such disobedience and ungodliness, and the Lord is going to destroy the city through the Babylonians. His judgment is, is set up. The Lord mentions three men and said, If Noah, Daniel, and Job were in that city, Ezekiel 14, 14, they themselves would only deliver themselves. You know, you think if the Lord's going to mention three great men in the Old Testament, men of faith, men of service, men that have respect for God, would, would Adam, first one, maybe Moses, Samuel, David? No, the Lord makes reference to Noah, Daniel, and Job. And those three individuals feared God, respected God, and had a reverence for God, even while facing difficult circumstances and living in an ungodly environment, they held it. But God said this of Jerusalem, that if those three men lived in that city, they would only be able to deliver themselves. Their faith would not deliver and cause Jerusalem to find mercy in that, in that state of ungodliness. But Job was a man that, that feared God. He had respect for God. If you turn with me just a little later in the book, and one of the conversations that Job is having with his friends, he basically declares his, his character. Turn with me to Job chapter 31. And you'll see in this chapter how much respect and reverence that Job had for the Lord and the Lord's ways. You know, he begins the chapter, I made a covenant with mine eyes. A covenant is he made an agreement. He settled on something that he's, he's going to do. And throughout this chapter, he declares his, his efforts to show his respect, to show his reverence for the Lord. Notice he had respect to the Lord's way. Verse 5, if I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. If my step hath turned out of the way, and my heart hath walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to my hands, then let me sow and let another, yea, eat, let my offspring be rooted out. What he's saying is, I have in my life showed respect and reverence to God's way. We go a little further in the chapter, we'll find that not only did he have respect for God's way, he had respect for his fellow man. Notice in verse 9, he had respect for his neighbor and his neighbor's wife. A little further in the chapter, he has respect for a servant or even his servant. 
Notice in verse 13, if I did despise the cause of my manservant, or if my midservant, when they contended with me, what then shall I do when God riseth up? He had respect for his servants. And by the way, if, if we have business and individuals work for us, the way we treat those that work for us really shows a lot in how we respect God. He had respect for his fellow man, the fatherless. Notice verse 17. Or have eaten my morsel myself alone, and the fatherless hath not eaten. He had respect for the fatherless. He had respect for the poor. If I have withheld the poor from their desire. He had respect for the hungry. Notice in verse 19 and 20. If I have seen any perish for want of clothing, or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me, or if he were not warmed, with the fleece my sheep. If I have lifted up my hand against the fatherless when I saw my help in the gate. I mean, Job said I had I had respect for my fellow man. Not only respect for the ways of God, I've shown respect for my, my fellow man. Not only that, he was an individual <clears throat> that did not involve himself in idolatry. Notice in verse 26, if I beheld the sun when it shined or the moon walking in its brightness. No, he said, I'm not a man that has given my heart to the adulterous actions of this world. Verse 27, and if my heart hath been secretly enticed or my mouth hath kissed my hand. He said, I'm not a man that's worshipped myself in this world. He's not a man that sought for his own self-glory. He's not a man that, uh, not only that, go a little later in the chapter here and I'm going to find something else. He's a man that had respect for honest labor and honest goodness. Notice with me in verse 38. If my land cry against me or that the furrows likewise thereof complain, if I have eaten the fruits thereof without money, if I have taken from someone without money, without doing justly in business and being an honest man in this world. He's showing I've got respect to honest business. Job was a man of exemplary character. He was a man that had reverence for God. He had reverence for God's ways. He had respect for his fellow man. He was not a man given to idolatry. He was not a man that worshipped the works of his own hands. He was not a man that tried to cover his sins, his own sins. Notice with me in verse 33. He said, if I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, He was not a man that tried to hide his own sins, but he was a man that confessed his sins before God. You remember in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, 28, 13, he said, If if he whoso hideth, whoso covereth his sins shall not prosper, but he that forsaketh and confesseth them shall have mercy. That's what Solomon said. Job was not a man that tried to hide his sins. Job was not a man that rejoiced at the calamity of others when others would have a difficult time. You'll find that also in this chapter. The Bible teaches us he that's glad at calamity should not go unpunished. Job was not a man that looked out and saw the calamities of other people and rejoiced and was glad because they had a hard time. Even his enemies. You know, that's difficult for us to do sometimes. When we see someone that hasn't treated us right, go through a difficult time, it's tough for us not to say, ha ha, you had it coming. No, the Word of God tells us not to do that. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 5, He that's glad at calamity should not go unpunished. We should pray for him and pray that God's mercy would be with him. Job was a man, as we see in this chapter, he had reverence for God and respect for God. Back to Job chapter 1 and verse 1, he was a man that eschewed evil. The word eschewed here means he was a person that avoided evil. 
He was a person that avoided ungodliness. He's a person that would push ungodliness away from him. Now, the Bible teaches us that we should avoid the wicked way. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. We should avoid it and pass not by it. We should do all that we can to stay away from the wicked way and to serve God faithfully. And this man was a man that also had care in his heart. I mean, this man was a man that looked at his children, had care for his children to the degree that he would pray for them, make intercession for them on a, on a regular basis. He was a man, as the head of the household, he would go and make offering for them, being the priest of the house. You remember we mentioned a few Sundays ago about the priest that existed in Israel before the Levitical priesthood. It was the heads of households. Job was a man as the head of the house. He would pray and make intercession for his children just in case they had sinned. I don't know if they've sinned, but I'm going to make intercession for them and pray for them just in case they have sinned. This man of exemplary character was a man that drew attention from another. You know who it was? It was the devil. This man that was upright, this man that shoot evil, this man that labored to do right, that had this exemplary character, yeah, he got the attention of somebody. He got the attention of the devil. Notice in verse 6 of this chapter, Now there was a day when the sons of God, and that's making reference to the angels of the Lord. Now these angels of the Lord, they're not a son of God the way Jesus is a son of God. They're not a son of God the way we have been made sons of God by God's grace, but they're sons of God by God's creation. God made them, made them. And the angels of the Lord were made, were made for God's glory, but also to serve creation. Their ministering spirit sent forth the minister for them who should be heirs of salvation. I think you and I, congregation, now we've read the text there in Matthew chapter 18 that basically declares that every child of God has, has an angel watching over them. Remember Jesus said, their angels, behold the face of their Father in heaven, their angels. How much does God love you, dear child of God? So much that you more than likely have an angel that watches over you. That's how much God loves you. But there's angels that are here in creation that are here to watch and guard and labor in creation. God made them for that purpose. See, there was no angel before Genesis 1-1. It was just God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God made the earth and God made servants to the earth. See, that's what the devil was in the beginning. God didn't make the devil wicked. No, God, everything he made is good and very good. But apparently the devil wanted creation for himself. And he fell, he fell from his first estate. The Bible does not teach us that the devil was ever in glory, okay? <laughs> the devil was never in glory. He was an angel, cherubim, seraphim, a servant to creation. He wanted creation for himself. And he fell from his first estate. And when these sons of God come in verse 6... Notice they came and presented themselves before the Lord and Satan, which literally means the accuser, the accuser, came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth. See, the devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere present, nowhere absent. He has to go to and fro. So he can't be troubling you and troubling me at the same time, but he does have minions because you remember when he fell, it was the devil and his angels. He has angels that work for him. And walking 
up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? And someone would say, Well, right there, the Lord says, Oh, there's Job, go get on him. No, that's not what the Lord is doing here. Mm -mm. This is in Scripture to let us know what's already on the devil's mind. I'm going to prove that to you. And the Lord said unto, unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him? Hold on. How did how'd the devil know there was a hedge about Job? How did he know? He'd already been there. He'd already been there. Hold on to that hedge just, just for a little while. The devil comes to Job and he can't get in to touch him the way he wants to. Why? He's hedged about. So now at this time when the sons of God presenting themselves to the Lord, the servants of creation, here comes the accuser. And the Lord said, if you considered my servant Job, see, he's going to and fro about the earth, causing as much destruction and pain as he can. The Bible teaches us in Revelation 12:10, he knoweth he hath but a short time. So there's only a little while for the devil to cause trouble, and his time will soon end. But during that time, he's going to stay on the job. Have you ever heard the story about the little sister that couldn't say anything bad about anybody at church. You know, the old preacher, you know, always at home, lazy preacher. They say, what do you think about the preacher? Well, he's always at home when I need him. <laughs> what do you think about those deacons? Well, they're, they're good fellas. Every, every time I call, they're, they're home. Never could say anything bad about anybody. They said, well, what do you think about the devil? Well, I can say this about him. He's always on the job. <laughs> That's true. He's always on the job. And this man, Job, is an upright man. He's a perfect man. He's one that shoot evil and fear God. He got the attention of the devil. And the devil says, he accuses Job. God, he don't serve you for naught. Uh -uh. He serves you because you've been good to him. That's why. He serves you because of everything you've done for him. So the Lord tells Satan, he said, you know, behold, all that he hath is in, it's in your hands. It's in your hands, but you can't touch him. And then you read in this first chapter of the five, I call them the five evil messengers. They brought evil message after evil message after evil message. Job, all your sheep's gone. All your camels is gone. All that you have is gone. There's a great wind and your children are dead. Every, everything's gone. Everything's gone. Job Job chapter 1 and verse 21, Job's response, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Here comes the servants of the Lord to the Lord again. Chapter 2. Satan, he's there again. Verse 4, he said, skin for skin. Yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. The Lord said, he's in your hand. When Satan touched him. Job lost all his health. Sore boils all over his body. So this man that at one time was described as the greatest man in the east, now he's lost everything. And his health is gone, and he's basically sitting in the trash piles, taking a piece of pottery and scraping the sores and the sore bowls on his, on his body. 
man is in such a state of suffering. If you notice at the end of chapter 2, his friends come to him. When they saw him afar off, they didn't even know who he was. Verse 12, and when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, didn't even recognize him because his physical appearance had changed so much. They lifted up their voice and wept. In verse 13, they couldn't even talk for seven days. Have you ever saw someone suffering so much? The physical complexion changed so much because you didn't even recognize them. Has that ever happened to you? It hadn't happened to me. I mean, I've saw some people in some severe physical conditions, but I was always able to recognize them. I have talked to people and said, you know, you can't hardly recognize him now from what he was. But they couldn't, rec- they couldn't even recognize Job. Sore balls all over his body and an ash heap. Lost everything that he had. And they just sit there with him for seven days. For they saw, verse 13, for they saw that his grief was very, very great. Very great. Now I want to tell you a little bit of good news about this effort of Satan and us today in the New Testament. During this time, which happened before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and died on the cross, Satan was able to present himself at that time with the other angels and make accusation against the children of God. But now he cannot. According to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, he's, he's been cast down. He no longer has his place. Why? Because Jesus has come... And physically shed his blood in your room instead. So even though in covenant salvation was in the mind of God finished before the foundation of the world. It was physically done when Jesus died on the cross. So the devil now could put forth an effort to go to the Father and say, you know, look at this dear child. God said, no, no, he's righteous. He's holy. The blood has already been shed. He's cleansed. He's accepted in heaven. It's done. So now the devil can accuse the children of God before the throne of God, the only place he has to accuse them now is in their mind and in their neighbor's minds. Now, that's bad enough. The devil bothers me in my mind, but I'm very thankful that now since Jesus has come, he can't accuse you in glory with the Lord. He doesn't have that place that he had even in the book of Job. So here they look at Job and saw his grief was very great. And chapter 3 of Job, to me, is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. This is this man and his suffering. And as he begs God just just to die. Notice in verse 3, he says, you know, Lord, I wish I'd never been born. Let the day perish wherein I was born and the night in which... It was said, there is a man-child conceived. You ever saw someone suffer so much? They said, I wish I'd just never been born. Chapter 3 and verse 11, he said, you know, I wish I'd have died during birth. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? You know, there's countless innumerable infants that died during, during labor. Job said, why couldn't I just be like one of them? Well, why did he want to be like one of them? Verse 17 there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. Job said, if I'd have been like one of those infants that died during birth, I would be at rest and peace right now and not suffering what I'm suffering. Finally, in verse 21 through 24, he basically begs God, take my life right now. 
Notice in verse 20, he said, Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life unto the bitter and soul which long for death? Job is one of the four men in the Bible that, re- that request God take my life. Remember Moses, Numbers chapter 11, God kill me. I want to die. This, this burden is too heavy for me. Remember Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19, when Jezebel threatened his life, he sat up under a juniper tree and just wished to die. I just want to die. Remember Jonah? Jonah, when he saw that Nineveh repented, life didn't turn out the way he thought it was going to turn out. God, I want to die. Job here in his, his sufferings just says, Lord, I'm ready to die. Just take, take my life. Take my life. Wow. And you think, man, Brother Ronnie, could it get any worse? He lost all that he had. Lost his health. Scraping the sores on his body with posture. Wish he could just die. And you know what? It got worse. Remember I told you about those friends of Job that come? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Yeah, they come and they go through three cycles of conversation. And in those three cycles, basically what they're all doing, the same thing. And these individuals have the mindset of most human beings on earth. And it's this, Job, you've done something to deserve this. There's no way you're going to suffer like this unless you've done something to deserve it. You look in chapter 4 of this this book. You can come to chapter 15, chapter 22. It's Eliphaz. And Eliphaz, his entire effort is from his own experience. What he's basically doing is, in my experience... Everything I've come in contact with, (laughs) he that does wrong suffers for it. Notice verse chapter 4 and verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, and where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity sow wickedness and reap the same. What he's saying is, Job, you've done something to deserve this. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Well, here comes Bildad. You know, you think, well, he's, he's going to be a little better, right? Bildad, chapter 8, chapter 18, chapter 25. He's going to be better, right? No, he's not going to be better. <laughs> Bildad speaks from, from tradition and history. Notice chapter 8 and verse 8. For inquire, I pray thee, of former age, tradition and history, and prepare thyself to search of thy father's for we are but yesterday and know nothing because our days upon the earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? Can the rush grow out without mire? Can, can, you ever saw rush grow out without mire? Can the fig grow without water? While it's yet in its greenness and not cut down. What he said is these things go together, Job. It withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all that forget God. What he's saying is you don't see rush without mire. You don't see grass growing without the ground. You don't see fruit growing without trees. It all goes together and sufferings go with wickedness. You've done something wrong, Job. Just go ahead and admit it. Confess you've done something wrong. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. These are bad things, Job. You've done something to deserve it. Well, the third, he's got to be better than the other two, right? No, he's worse than the other two. His entire effort here is just through assumptions and accusations. Notice in chapter 11, you'll also find Zophar speaking again a little later in the book. And, and I've, I've had a difficult time finding him speaking the, the third time. Apparently the Lord put a sock in his mouth. 
He said in chapter 11, verse 5, so far, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. If God would speak, he'd speak against you and put you in your place, Job. And that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thy iniquity deserves. What is he saying? Job, you ain't getting half what you deserve. You're an ungodly man. You've done something wrong, and God's having mercy on you. You deserve worse than this. Wow, what's a prince? I mean, how would you like it if, if you came into church one day and you was limping on a little boot, Sister Libby? And Brother Ronnie met you at the door and said, You know, Sister Libby, your walk before God has not been right. Therefore, I can see that God is judging you by your walk. How would that get you excited about coming to listen to me preach? Sister Libby probably turned back around and go home. What do you think? Well, somebody come into church and they had a, had a backache. And they said, Boy, my back is really hurting me. What if I said, Brother Gary, I'll tell you what. You've got a lot of sin in your life that you haven't confessed. It's waking you down. That's the reason your back's hurting. You've done something wrong. How would that make you feel, Brother Gary? I bet Brother Gary would tell me to find another place to stand. What if you came in the house of God and you had a headache? You said, I've kind of had a headache today. I say, well, your mind's probably been on the wrong leg all week. All you've been doing is thinking about wicked and evilness. Your mind's been filled with that. God's causing you to have pain in your head. That gets you excited about coming to church? Boy, Job, I'm sure he felt really good about being around these comforters, right? No, he didn't. Chapter 12, verse 2, he tells him, he said, you know, you guys have got to be the smartest people I've ever met. No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. You're the smartest people I ever met. There ain't going to be no smart people on earth after you're gone. That's what Job tells him. Chapter 13, verse 4, he said, you know, you're all a bunch of liars, but you're forgers of lies. You're all physicians of no value. If I sick, you couldn't help me a bit. Chapter 16, verse 2, he said, you're miserable comforters. Miserable. I'm needing comfort, and you don't have any comfort for me. Chapter 19 and verse 2, how long will you vex my soul? You don't cause anything but grief and sorrow. I bet Job is saying, I wish you guys would just stay at home, stay at home. Now, toward the end of the book, you got this little Elihu, this young guy. He steps in. He's going to really make a show. You know, he's full of himself. <laughs> he begins to misquote Job. Say, Job said this and Job said this. I got four or five things that I've read in Elihu's comments. I cannot find where Job said any of those things. You know, it's nothing, nothing makes you feel better when somebody starts to really jump on your back and misquote you and say you said things that you never said, right? So here's poor Job. Poor Job has lost all he had. His health is gone. He's got these friends that are there. And Job didn't have it all right himself. Later in the book, the Lord comes. The Lord comes, and the Lord displays his power. When I look at this book as a whole, there's four things that I'm able to gather and learn from it. One, the first, I am convicted by Job's level of understanding. You remember I said this book was written during the days of Abraham? Have you ever read through this book and found where one of them said, Moses said in the law? No, you haven't. You know why this book was written before? These events took place before the law was given from outside. This book, these events took place long before the word of God was complete. This book was, these events took place long before there's a church. Have you ever noticed how much Job had right? 
understood that God created the world and these things around us. Remember he said there in Job chapter 26, he hangeth the earth on nothing. Who was the astronaut? Jeffrey Williams is in outer space, looked back at the earth and said, well, it's hanging on nothing. I mean, it took people thousands of years just to come to the conclusion that Job had in his day. And Job didn't have a word of God. Mm -mm. What did Job have? Job had the revelation of God in creation. He could see God's handiwork. He could see God's revelation in judgments. And he had God's revelation from mouth to ear. See, there's a man named Adam that walked with God, and he talked to his sons. They talked to their sons, and it went down from generation. But that's all Job had. Job didn't have anything else except the revelation of God in his heart, being the born-again child of God. But yet he understood creation. You know, that convicts me. It should convict everybody in the world. A man like Job that had the revelation he had but yet understood that God made the world. <laughs> you know, Job understood that there was a Redeemer. Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 26. He, he understood that his Redeemer was in heaven. He would come down and stand upon this earth. And at the latter time, he would see him. He would see him. He believed that his Redeemer was in heaven. Job knew, I can't redeem myself. It's beyond me. But he believed there'd be one to come down and redeem him. Job believed in the resurrection. Job believed that he would wait, Job chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, until his change come. You know, Job believed the same thing about the resurrection at the last days, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Job did not believe that there'd be an exchange of the body. You heard when somebody say, when the Lord comes back, we'll have a new body. That's not true. That's not true. It's going to be this body changed, changed. Why? Because God bought us soul, body, and spirit. And it'll be this body changed, glorified in the image of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means it will be without sin. It won't grow older. <laughs> the pains of this life won't trouble us. Don't believe that. It convicts me because I've got the church. I've got the word of God. I have the revelation of Jesus Christ. He did have. How much more should I know? How much more? I'm convicted by that. I'm also amazed when I read this book about the mercy of God. I said Job didn't have it all right. Go read Job chapter 16 and Job chapter 19. Job went through cycles where he even, he even blamed the Lord. I think the Lord's put this on me. He's, he's, just, he's destroyed me on every side. Job went back and forth. But yet at the end of the book, if you notice with me in chapter 42, I mean the, the Lord commends Job. Notice verse 7, when the Lord comes on the scene. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath, hath. Job didn't speak everything right, but yet the Lord commended him. Commended. How could that be? The Bible teaches us over in Psalms 104 that the Lord knoweth our frame. He knows we're but the dust of the earth. God knew that Job didn't have the light and understanding that we have today. But Job was commended because he took the light and understanding he had and put it to use. He put it to use. How many times have you heard me say in the pulpit that in heaven, our heavenly home, for us to be there, we'll have to be perfect and without flaw? That's true. But the only way that's possible is if the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us because we'll never attain that of our own selves. Can't do it. We can't do it ourselves. Jesus came and done that for us and imputed his righteousness to us. Now here in this world, we as children of God, boy, the devil likes to whisper in your mind, well, you flopped, you failed, you come short, you're not fit. Be best for you to stay away from the church. 
the way the Lord looks at his children? The Lord is very merciful and long-suffering with his children. Poor little Job here, he missed some things, but yet God commends him. And I will tell you, dear children of God, we all miss things in our service, but we have a precious heavenly Father that is very merciful. His mercies fail not. You know, Psalms 136, every verse teaches us his mercy endureth forever. You know, one verse should have been enough. Why does God have to tell us in all 26 verses why he wants us to know for sure in our minds his mercy endures forever? He's a God of compassion, merciful and long-suffering, David told us in Psalms 86 and verse 15. And dear children of God, if the devil's whispering in your ear of your false affairs, remember Job. Remember Job and how merciful God was to him. James even quotes him in the New Testament. He said, you've heard of the patience of Job in the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. That pitiful means God has, is full of pity for his little children that go through the struggles and the troubles of this life. The Lord knows that the devil looks to hurt his little children. And the Lord is very merciful and kind to his little children. You know, the Lord concerning heaven, we didn't get a chance in heaven. We didn't have a chance. It was Jesus Christ that came and secured. But concerning our life as his disciples, God gives us second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, eighth, tenth, twelfth chances in, our, in his service. Why? Because he loves you and he's, he's full of goodness. Another thing that this book teaches me is it teaches me the sovereignty of God, and, and I'm humbled and motivated by the sovereignty of God that's on display here. You know, usually when people start reading this book, the first question they have is, why does bad things happen to good people? Why? Why does bad things happen to good people? After you read this book, and the Lord comes to Job, and he asked Job, he said, Job, can, can, you, can you explain to me creation? Where, where was you when I made the earth? Can you explain to me that? Joe, can you explain to me how I maintain creation? Can you tell me about the lion going to get his prey, about the birds laying their eggs, about the goats going in the mat? Can you tell me about all that, Joe? Joe, are you able to subdue creation? And God makes reference to two great beasts, the behemoth and the leviathan. Can, can you subdue this, Joe, or is this beyond you? God said, I can't. Can you tell me all about this, Joe? And Job said, you know, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You know what Job come to a conclusion? When he thought about himself and who God is, Job wasn't asking why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people. Job was just wondering why does good things happen to us, any whatsoever. This book to me helps me understand, motivates me, and humbles me concerning God's sovereignty. And I, I don't ask why does bad things happen to good people. I ask now why does he, why does anything good happen to me in my life at all? Why? Why does anything good happen to me at all? Why does good even happen to any man? It could only be the sovereign God of the universe that didn't owe any man anything was merciful. Remember I said that about the hedge? You know, Job said there in Job chapter 3, that thing that I fear most has come unto me. He's lost his hedge. He lost his hedge. Three ways we the children of God lose our hedge. One is because of our own sin. You remember David in 2 Samuel 24 when he sinned numbering Israel? He lost his hedge. Another way is to prevent sin. God sometimes will pull the hedge down that we could suffer in this life to prevent us from sinning. Remember the Apostle Paul that happened to him lest he would be exalted in the flesh. There was a messenger of Satan that could touch him. Touch him. The third way is we lose a hedge is God never owed us a dime. God never owed me a hedge. God never owed me any goodness. You know, if I get anything besides an eternal burning hell 
only because of God's mercy and grace and all the goodness that you've enjoyed in your life. God did not owe that to you. Children, God did not owe you a good mom and daddy. God did not owe us this place we have in the kingdom of God. God did not owe us eternal life. Everything we have is because the sovereign God of this universe that owns all things, that looks over all things, that's able to do all things anytime he pleases, when he pleases, and to whom he pleases has mercy for us. And I'm motivated and humbled at the same time to serve a God that didn't owe me nothing, that has given me so much in my life. The fourth thing the book of Job teaches me comforts me. You go to the end of the book of Job, God blessed Job in the end, and the blessings of God to Job were greater than what he had at the start. The end of Job was better than the beginning. I'm comforted by that because that teaches me that God's goodness is better and greater than any effort of the devil and the world. The devil and the world cannot take away from you more than God is able to to give you. Now that is good news. That is a comfort to my heart. The devil and the world is constantly taking and taking and taking. They're takers, but they cannot take away from you more than God is able to give you. And praise God, one day he will give you something in heaven and in glory that we could not purchase ourselves, that he built for us, he prepared for us before the world began. And praise God, the devil and the world sure can't take that away from you because it's preserved for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder the Apostle Paul would say this, and I'll quote this and, and we'll close, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. May God richly bless you as our prayer. If there's anyone here today that would like to come forward and ask for a home here at Union Grove Primitive Baptist Church, I'd like to encourage you to do so as we stand and sing hymn number, brothers? 47. 47. <laughs>